Hello, everybody. It is uh, April 3rd of 2019, and, and we're on the call today. So well, there's just a couple of people here. I'm actually uh, finishing up an email real quick. I'm going to unmute the whole board and good wishes to you guest three and if anybody wishes to talk they can just talk right now so everyone's unmuted Well, uh, if no one's going to talk, does anybody have an idea of what they would like to hear about this evening? If you have an idea, you can just type it into the chat board. So I've had a kind of a busy week. My head hurts a little bit. How's everyone else doing out there?
So, uh, someone wishes for me to talk about the North Carolina State Bar and their disciplinary actions. And uh, disciplinary actions are, it doesn't really matter if it's the North Carolina State Bar. Every state has a state bar. And in fact, um, in fact, uh, South Carolina was actually the first state to have a bar association. As funny as that sounds. Um, <clears throat> the state bar is the licensing agency that licenses attorneys and you can um, write up a complaint, a bar complaint in most states and have it submitted. Some states actually restrict bar complaints and they restrict bar complaints by education levels. They restrict bar complaints by um, whether you're an attorney or not. They restrict bar complaints to certain things uh, because in some states people will just write bar complaints for really minor things in states where people really kind of go with the sovereign citizen type of mentality. Sometimes they'll write bar complaints for things. I've heard of things as stupid as they didn't like the other attorney's hair, which is kind of a retarded thing to write a bar complaint about. Whenever you write a bar complaint, you should probably do it with some type of basis in law um an example of that would be i actually was watching a case one time where the man who was having the state bring an action against him declared on the record that it was a false claim and the prosecutor kept moving it and nobody declared that it was not a false claim and so that would be something that you could write a bar complaint over you could write a bar complaint because an attorney actually took something like uh, attorneys usually have ways of swindling things out of you. So if you've been swindled for some type of assets or property, then you could write a bar complaint about that. Typically, and it doesn't work the same everywhere, but for instance, in states where uh, attorneys have to be insured, when you write bar complaints, their insurance goes up. Attorneys always have to be bonded with the court. When you write bar complaints, the bonding with the court, that price goes up. So that's one reason why people write bar complaints. And it's one thing that you can kind of do if, uh, if an attorney's actually really done you wrong or is moving in a way that is unlawful. And when opening your own case, at what point is it beneficial to contact them? Um, if you're talking about the actual bar association, I don't believe it's beneficial to contact them opening your own case. There's really no reason. 
the individual that you wish to get in contact with whenever you're opening a case is the high clerk. The high clerk of any courthouse is the most powerful individual at that courthouse. There's no one individual who's more powerful than the high clerk. And some people kind of get thrown off by this fact. Um, because typically most people believe that the judge is the most powerful individual in a courthouse or courtroom. And maybe in the courtroom, that might be true. But in the actual courthouse, judges are usually on circuit. And so they might go and visit for four different counties or three different counties or five different counties, depending on how big the counties are and how big the circuit is. And so they're not always at the exact same courthouse. The high clerk of that courthouse goes to that courthouse every day. And if they don't wish to file something, then it's not going to get filed. Um, high clerks can actually get away with a lot. And high clerks know a fair amount about law. They, they know enough to do their job. For instance, down here in South Carolina, you don't have to have a law degree to be the clerk of court. It's not a requirement. So the high clerk in the county that I live in actually has a business administration degree. It has nothing to do with law at all. And that's more or less what the high clerk does is, is administration, you know, administrating proceedings, administrating paperwork, filing paperwork, taking the paperwork up to the court. But in a real action, they have the absolute authority. When you're filing a case and you wish for it to stay at common law, then there's no judicial officer in the court except for a jury. And you got to make sure that the high clerk and yourself are on the same page on that whenever you're filing an action. Otherwise, it's not going to go anywhere. And whoever you get assigned as a judge to your case will probably throw it out if they don't feel like dealing with it. So, and if you don't have an attorney, a lot of times they don't feel like doing dealing with the the way that courthouses are supposed to work is that the attorneys and corporations and all of the people who use state courts are to pay the fees so that courts are open to the public. And of course, it doesn't really work out that way because the bar association has really gotten into every aspect and realm of what courts are and more or less they've turned it into a private business you have to pay for absolutely everything which is why you have to pay for filing uh i would say that most high clerks if not all actually do know that there are times and situations where people do not have to pay. And even in their world, 
for instance, like uh, if you're going to go file an order of protection and you don't have the money to pay, they can't deny you justice or right just because you don't have money. Uh, so they'll actually allow you to move that action if you don't have money. And I think uh, I, I think orders of protection are kind of whack anyways, because usually, and sometimes they're probably given for good reasons, but it's absolutely an instrument that people use to hurt somebody else or to take somebody away from um, the other side. They, you know, people tend to use that as a weapon. And I think it's it's very much designed to be used as a weapon. So one of the big problems that I have with uh, an order of protection is the fact that uh, basically the court goes ahead and takes away people's property, where they live, uh, where they can go, whether they can see their children or not, and they haven't gotten the other side of the story. They typically just take one person's word, and without any evidence or any proof, so to say, they uh, just move against the other party. And then when they do actually go to court and are moving one way or the other, if the other side has an attorney, what the attorney is probably going to do is try and keep out any evidence that doesn't directly pertain to the allegations on the order of protection, which is kind of BS because if somebody is just making up allegations and is just making up some, some stupid stuff, how do you prove a not? without talking about things that relate to it but aren't directly involved with what you're being accused of you know that's a place where you really need character witnesses and it's really helpful if you have been recording the party who took out that order of protection against you that can save your life sometimes Well, thanks, Proc. Thanks for being out here tonight. How and when did the Bar Association start? Um, the Bar Association started from the inner and outer temples in inner London, and that probably started with the Knights Templar, although it's a little unclear to me, at least, exactly how that got started. Um, but like if you go 
and look, and I believe Webster's 1828, and look at ends of court. Let me just pull it up here on the internet real quick, and that way I can be fairly precise. Yeah, the ends of court, colleges in which students of law reside and are instructed. The principal are the Inner Temple, the Middle Temple, Lincoln's Inn, and Gray's Inn. And if you actually look up Templar in um, the Webster's 1828, I'll read that here. The first definition for Templar is a student of law. Um, the second one is the Templars, the Knights of the Temple, a religious military order, first established at Jerusalem in favor of pilgrims traveling to the Holy Land. So if I had to guess, the Bar Association was started by the Knights Templar. Um, because when the Templar were disbanded in 1307 on Friday the 13th in October, which is why that day will forever live in infamy, uh, a lot of Templars actually went up to Scotland because the king more or less gave them a safe haven in Scotland. And they kept up with their trade and businesses and they had a lot of merchant ships and did a lot of banking. Uh, the Templars that did not go to Scotland, I believe, and there's a lot of evidence for this belief, but I believe that they went and formed Switzerland and uh, created a military order that stayed up in Switzerland. And that is, uh, that is why Switzerland never gets attacked by anybody. They always have all of the money. Now, as far as the Bar Association and when it first was developed, uh, I don't know. Um, I don't know enough about that to really speak authoritatively on when that happened. Um, I do know that uh, even in the common law, the common law really didn't appreciate the Bar Association too much. And a lot of lawyers and attorneys, actually there were more lawyers back then, uh, who came over to America, were coming over to America because the Bar Association over in England, over in the old country, was pretty corrupt even back then. And so they kind of brought the common law over here. And a lot of things that are going on today, if you go and look throughout the English history, you can see kind of a repeat. Um, a lot of the things that people are dealing with today, for instance, being pulled over on the side of the road and having to pay a fee to get your property back, these things were going on before the Magna Carta started or the Magna Carta was written. And in fact, that's one of the reasons why the Magna Carta 
was written and they put a sword to King John's throat was because the people, the general people of the land were pissed off um, from the king's army, more or less, robbing them at, at sword point. And so they told him that he better sign the Magna Carta or they're going to run him through. And the story, I think, is actually kind of beautiful because after the signing of the Magna Carta, of course, you know, the king goes back on his word because he got more or less leave from the Pope of Rome to do so. And, uh, you know, the Pope of Rome basically called the Magna Carta a null and void contract because they put a sword to his throat. And, you know, with that, you would think, okay, well, they probably killed him. The people didn't actually kill, kill him. They laid siege to his castle until he died from dysentery. And that's more or less the power of the people when they get really, really upset and really pissed off. They had so many people laying siege to that castle. Nobody was even willing to throw the feces over the wall. Because they, they were afraid that they were going to get hit by an arrow or something. You know, somebody was going to snatch them and they'd never be seen again. <laughs> it's kind of interesting. You know, I also think that's interesting that a Templar was considered a student at law or a student in law. <coughs> a student of the law. And in fact, when defense attorneys were first introduced, uh, society actually didn't really accept them. And for the most part, when people got a defense attorney, it more or less made you look guilty. Because if you didn't do something, then what is your problem <clears throat> going into an open court and saying that you didn't, did not do something? One thing that kind of bugs me is people talk about your right to attorney, to attorneys. Like, I actually follow this guy, Steve Lato of Lato's Law on YouTube, and he was actually talking about this this past week, and he was talking about your right to an attorney. And you have a right to attorney in criminal cases, and everybody's heard the, if you cannot afford an attorney, one will be provided for you. <clears throat> and I believe that that happened from a case back in the early 60s. I'd have to check up on that. When they actually started giving people attorneys, um, if they didn't have an attorney. But the Sixth Amendment, for the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, 
actually says pretty clearly in there that you don't have the right to an attorney, you have the right to assistance of counsel, which means that you have the right to have somebody there with you helping you present your case. You have the right to have somebody <clears throat> right next to you to help you think about questions, to help you think about what evidence is pertinent, what evidence is, you know, more or less futile, what you wish to present to the court, how you're going to proceed in whatever cause, case, action you have going on at the time. <clears throat> so nowhere in the Constitution does it say that you have a right to an attorney. And another reason that attorneys were really looked down on when they first started having defense attorneys, which I believe started around um, the 15th century. But back then, typically, and it kind of works the same way today, but it's a little different. But back then, when you were being charged with a crime, normally you were being charged by the king or through one of the king's representatives, uh, sheriff, someone in the military, you know, whatever was going on. And so basically, people who were defense attorneys got treated pretty poorly because it basically looked like they were going against the king. They're trying to keep people away from the king's justice. Now, over time, that kind of subsided and passed. And the reason why I say it kind of works the same way today is because typically people are arrested by police officers. And police officers come from the executive branch, like all police officers and all police agencies are under the executive branch of government. So more or less, you're being charged by a representative of the king because the executive branch or the governor or the president is more or less symbolic of, of the king in the old times. And they're the ones charging you. Of course, I'm sure people have heard Sean talk about on the show that whenever you get charged, the officer does not actually have a warrant to arrest you. So the officer is kind of arresting you on the faith that whenever he gets you down to the jail and moves before the magistrate, the magistrate will grant them an war a warrant of arrest. And police officer is very different from peace officer because a peace officer is uh, is an officer who keeps the peace. Um, in fact, here in Webster's 1828, a peace officer is a civil officer whose duty is to preserve the public peace, to prevent or punish riots, etc., as a sheriff or constable. So a peace officer, their only job is to keep the peace. And that is very different from a police officer. Again, Webster's 1828, an officer entrusted with the execution 
of the laws of a city. If you change the E to a Y, it spells policy. A police officer is a policy enforcer. They have absolutely nothing to do with keeping the peace. They just enforce the policy of whatever municipal government they're working for at the time. And the thing that's really interesting is that now most police stations, and they started this back in the late 80s or early 90s, in big cities, they started privatizing police stations. And now they have police stations owned pretty much to every local county government in America. And uh, police is um, ju just police from Webster's 1828. The government of a city or town, the administration of the laws and regulations of a city or incorporated town or borough, as the police of London, of New York or Boston. The word is applied also to the government of all towns in New England, which are made corporations by a general statute for certain purposes. So right there, you can kind of use deductive logic and realize that police are only there for corporations, uh, for towns that have been incorporated. In fact, the history of police is really interesting in my mind. So police really did not start to appear until the early 1800s. And of course, mainland Europe had police as far back as the 15th century, I believe. And it never really appeared in England until the early 1800s. And the way that the police actually came about was that there was so much organized crime and organized gangs and different things of that nature on the docks of London that I forget who actually started the police agency, but they started a police agency. And within the first year, spending two or 3,000 pounds and back then it was actually pounds of sterling silver. So it's not like what you would think of as a British pound today. So, but spending two to 3,000 pounds of sterling silver, they saved 500,000 pounds worth of merchandise from leaving the docks. And also the police were there. I forget how many people that the police department helped save in that first year. But they did things like they helped a couple of people save, um, not drowned. You know, some people fell into the river <laughs> and they got them out. So obviously, after that, it spread to a lot of other cities like Boston or New York, Chicago. Chicago has one of the oldest police forces in the United States as well along with New York and Boston. And New York is really interesting because that was the first place where the civil law kind of took over in the United States. Of course, Louisiana has always been under the civil law because that was part of the uh, purchase, the Louisiana purchase, was that Louisiana would stay under the Napoleonic civil law and not move to a common law state. 
<clears throat> the way the rest of America is. Um, but New York was the first state to really implement a civil law code and have it enforced in courts. And I believe New York, the inner city of New York started that in the 1830s. And it was kind of a hard sell, but by 1900, it was pretty much implemented all across America. There were places in the West where they were still under what you would think of as, as the common law, where they didn't really have statutes implemented. It was just if somebody did something bad, they'd bring them into a court, try them, let them go or hang them. Um, one thing that I think people also don't realize about the common law is the punishments in common law are incredibly severe. So, for instance, breaking an entry in common law could be punishable by death. Now, whether you would get the death penalty for breaking an entry on a first offense, probably pretty unlikely. That's the reason they had the blocks in the town square where they would kind of put people up and, you know, you always see in the uh, movies and stuff where, you know, people are up on the block in the town square and somebody comes by and throws some rotten vegetables at them or something. So typically what they would do would be public shaming first. And then if you did it multiple times, they would probably just find it, you know, in everybody's best interest to just get rid of you. That's one of the reasons why common law punishments were so severe is because if you're a grown adult, like if you're a grown man or a grown woman and you don't understand how to act, how to be respectful to the people around you, how to not steal, not break into other people's houses, not take from others and work for yourself and work things out on your own, the more or less they just saw it as you weren't worth having around. And a really good example of some of that would be when they were pushing west from the American expansion, what the Americas call Manifest Destiny, which was really like, hey, we're going to go and take over the rest of the Indians' land and kick out some Mexicans while we're at it. Um, but <clears throat> out in the Old West, or what you would think of as the Old West, they really didn't play around. If you got caught doing fairly small stuff, sometimes there would be very severe punishments for you. And <clears throat> sometimes it would all depend on the townspeople. And that's really what common law comes down to, because sometimes the townspeople would get together and say, ah, what he did was bad, but it's not worth punishing too severely. We're just going to excommunicate him, which would be you would leave the town and then the townspeople would never talk to you again. And then other times they would say, ah, we're going to do this and, you know, we're going to go ahead and get rid of them because of they're still doing silly games like this and 
uh, ripping us off and doing this or that. If we just excommunicate them, they're going to go to the next town over or the next state over, the next territory over, and they're going to do this to somebody else. And basically, people with the conscience, I mean, if you had something done to you that was bad and horrible and a crime, would you really want to put that onto somebody else? And that's where the idea came from. Well, let's just get rid of them. You know, a rope isn't that expensive. <laughs> so I actually, I definitely believe in, in capital punishment. It's a lot, in my mind, it's a lot better than than eugenics. Eugenics is pretty insane, but capital punishment is another way of more or less thinning out the stock. And I believe that somebody doesn't know how to be responsible, doesn't know right from wrong by the time they're 30, 40, <laughs> they're never going to learn. The only problem with that is we live in a society where for the most part, the society in general, the way that our society is set up, it's set up in such a way, it's structured in such a way that it rewards people who do bad things. It rewards people who do wrong things. And one example of this is everybody's been hearing about the Mueller investigation against Trump. And I mean, it does make the liberal news media look pretty bad because they've been digging at this for, you know, well over two years now. But obviously, they didn't find enough to charge Trump. And even though they didn't find enough to charge Trump with any sort of crime, a lot of people in the liberal media is like, hey, look at how many people we arrested or indicted. You know, you have, uh, uh, what's that attorney's name? I can't think of it. Michael Cohen. You have the other guy who was running Trump's uh, finance campaign. And uh, you have a couple other people. I mean, I, th I believe that they had 20 or 30 indictments, but nobody was actually charged with Russian collusion. Uh, they, they were just charged with, you know, mismanaging finances. They were charged with um, mishandling funds, lying to Congress. And, and Michael Cohen, I, I think that's kind of hilarious because he gets charged with lying to Congress. And then what's the next thing that happens? He goes into Congress to testify against Trump. <laughs> and it's like, that's kind of whack in my mind, because if you went to a court and lied and then people prove that you lied to that court, why would they ever take you seriously again? In fact, I remember having a friend of mine, he was appointed, speaking of the uh, right to have an attorney. So if, you, if you're not playing their game, sometimes they just appoint you an attorney and say that it's your right. And then they're trying to uphold your rights. So they just appoint you an attorney, which, you know, really they're just appointing an attorney to turn you over their jurisdiction. 
but he was all worried about it. I was like, no, no, no. I go in there and ask him, like, set up an appointment with him. So he set up an appointment with him. And I was just sitting in the back of the room, and I thought it was hilarious because he asked, he goes, if I ask you a, a question about legal, like legal stuff, if I ask you a legal question, do you have to tell me the truth? And the attorney goes, well, I generally tell the truth. <laughs> and then he follows it right up with, if I ask you a question in law, do you have to tell me the truth? And he goes, of course. <laughs> well, is that one of those general times or not so general times? <laughs> so I thought that was hilarious. <laughs> so, but an attorney can absolutely lie to you. And I forgot what I was talking about a minute ago. Oh, about Michael Cohen lying in court and then going back in and testifying and of course that common law if you lie in a court you can never testify in an open court like if you get convicted of perjury you can never testify in an open court again and the reason that is is because in the common law a man or a woman's voice is the most powerful thing in a courtroom nothing in a courtroom happens without a man or a woman's voice actually supporting it and this is pretty self-evident when you look at something like uh, a summary judgment. Whenever they're moving for a summary judgment, typically it, all of the parties are in agreement with the facts. And uh, <clears throat> so they still have to get the facts on the record. And even if all the parties agree with the facts, it's interesting because let's say you're getting sued by Visa. Visa is coming after you for a $40,000 credit card debt. And you're getting sued by Visa. And Visa pays their attorney a good amount of money for the attorney to go after you and figure, you know, get a judgment against you. And they get you, you get an attorney, maybe, I don't know. And the the attorneys work it out and they say, okay, yeah, he 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 recognizes he owes the twenty thousand dollars, but you know, Visa tacked on 18% interest, which was reoccurring for so many years and it was compounding. So out of the $20,000 he owes, he only actually borrowed five. So what about we settle on a $7,000 judgment? Whenever y'all come to that agreement and you're trying to move before the court, the attorney for Visa will have to call whoever's being sued for that amount onto the stand so that they can actually verify the facts on the record. And this is basically testifying against yourself. <clears throat> and in a civil case, you have to testify. In a civil case, like Visa coming after you, if they wish to call you to the stand, you can't necessarily deny going to the stand. What you can do is you can make it really difficult for them. Um, for instance, they might ask you if you understood the contract. Uh, no, I didn't read all of the fine print. You know, did you sign the contract? I don't remember. 
you know, like I sign a lot of things every day. You know, you're you're expecting me to remember one piece of paper I signed maybe five or six years ago. Good luck. <laughs> I don't rem remember pieces of paper I signed last week. <laughs> you know, and those are fairly understandable answers. And a lot of people don't really have the best memory in the world. You can say that and you probably wouldn't be lying. I mean, a lot of people know that they signed, but they don't remember. It's like, yeah, I probably did that at some point in time. Do I have a clear memory of it? I don't recall. So <clears throat> also, every situation is different. And that's one thing that people really have to understand is that there's no formula to this. You have to go with whatever your situation is and you have to know the rules of court and you have to move with those rules within your situation and just to give everybody an example of rules of court and what i'm talking about is probably the biggest and foremost upfront rule of court that everybody for the most part in the counterculture knows is that you have the right to face your accuser, that you have the right to have somebody come into court and get on the stand and swear that you did something wrong. And in fact, getting back to the visa case, if uh, even if they did call you to be a witness, the fact that nobody on the other side ever swore to anything or could be li held liable to anything that they said means that you don't have to you don't have to tell the truth about it you don't have to talk about that situation because until the other side verifies what's going on you don't have to verify what's going on and i don't know what state the people on this call might be from but if you go and look things about that up in case law you'll typically find it no matter what state you're in and that's one thing that a lot of people kind of misconstrue about case law when they're studying this stuff a lot of people will quote case law and a lot of times people actually quote the wrong part of the case law not saying that it's not good you know good sensible advice good sensible reasoning to follow but they present it to the court as if it's law and that particular part of the case law might not be. Um, I forgot what I was talking about again. But <clears throat> if you are going to actually play the case law game, you have to go and find case law that's applicable in the state or the jurisdiction that you're in. You can't just pull any random case law and believe that it's it's going to apply wherever you're at if you are in arizona you got to pull something from arizona if you're in the federal jurisdiction you can pull supreme court case law a lot of the supreme court case law with the way that the courts are structured today actually apply to all of the states 
for instance, I know that if you have a case in a state, just a regular state court, you can actually appeal it and go all the way to the United States Supreme Court for them to make a ruling that applies over the entire union, which would mean all 50 states. So typically Supreme Court case law of the United States is generally accepted as true law. Uh, I don't necessarily suggest using case law. If, if you have a good solid argument and your argument is founded in law, I've never really seen a situation or been party to something where somebody was presenting their side of the argument in law and the judge was completely moving against them and then they said oh wait 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 i have this case law here and the judge went oh really you got case law there man that just makes me change my mind <laughs> and i have seen some really really funny situations there was one time i begged this guy not to use case law i actually told him i said man you're going up against a judge who has been a federal judge as long as you have been alive, almost as long as he had been alive. And, and you really think that you're just going to quote some case law, like some snippets of case law that you got off the internet, and this guy's just going to abracadabra disappear. <laughs> you know, all of your worries are gone. <laughs> that obviously did not happen. <laughs> So, but I do think that it's funny that people actually believe or think that this might happen, could happen. It's kind of amusing to me. So, anybody else have anything that they wish to hear about or talk about this evening? There's nothing really in the chat board. You know, I think it's interesting with the counterculture movement, how people like to talk about state citizens. I, I love it when people say, I'm not a citizen of the United States, I'm a citizen of whatever state I live in. So, because I love that so much, I'm going to read from Corpus Juris Secundum, where it talks about state citizen. In the United States, a double citizenship exists in the sense that a person is generally a citizen both of the United States and of the particular state and is subject to, owes allegiance to, and can demand protection from two governments, each within its own jurisdiction, where therefore the United States Constitution makes a person a citizen of a state, there arises universally recognized reciprocal duties of protection by the state and of allegiance and support by the citizen. There is, however, a clear distinction between national citizenship and state citizenship. Citizenship of the United States is paramount 
and dominant and not subordinate and derivative from state citizenship. So if anybody understands what that's saying right there is it's basically saying that whenever you are a state citizen, it is paramount and dominated by the United States. The United States always comes first. It will always come first ever since the Civil War. So if you say that you're a state citizen, then you are also a citizen of the United States. One of the things to kind of really hammer this home and exemplify it is on uh, my last video that I put out last week, I actually talked about, uh, I'm reading from Corpus Juris Secundum, or I was reading from Corpus Juris Secundum, but I was talking about the, uh, hey Money Mike, how you doing? I'm pretty good. Money Mike might talk, maybe, maybe not. What's, so uh, I was talking what? about the North Carolina State Constitution and Section 5 of Article 1 is allegiance to the United States. Every citizen of this state owes paramount allegiance to the Constitution and government of the United States and no law or ordinance of the state in contravention or subversion thereof can have any binding force. So most mm. states have something like this written right into their constitution, where it's saying that if you are a citizen of that state, or if you are a national of that state, which a national is basically just another word for a citizen, a national and a citizen um, are actually a little bit different because a national, a state national, or a United States national, they owe permanent allegiance to whatever the state they're national of, but the state doesn't actually owe them any protection. So that's the only difference between being a citizen and a national, is that if you're a national, the state does not actually owe you any type of protection, but you still owe the state, whatever state you're a national of, all of the allegiance that a national would give to whatever state they wish to be nationalized with. Who are state citizens? The United States Constitution provides that all persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction of the United States. And that's the real key thing when you're reading the 14th Amendment is you got to be born or naturalized and subject to the jurisdiction. And if you go back and look in almost any legal dictionary, in fact, I'll just pull up Webster's again, because I like Webster's. And you look up citizen. Um, hmm. Well, this doesn't actually have the definition that I was looking for. 
Because if you go look up in any legal dictionary, citizen is basically synonymous with subject. And in here it says, the native of a city or an inhabitant who enjoys the freedom and privileges of the city in which he resides, the free man of a city, as distinguished from a foreigner, or one not entitled to its franchises. So generally, I'm getting back to corpus juris secundum here. Generally, there, therefore, a person who is a citizen of the United States and a resident of or domiciled in a particular state is necessarily a citizen of that state. When, however, a person establishes a foreign domicile, he or she loses state citizenship. The protection afforded to a citizen by the 14th Amendment Citizenship Clause is a limitation on the powers of the federal government as well as the state. Citizens of the United States have the right to choose to be citizens of the state. And this is basically talking about, um, you know, for instance, if you're a state citizen, say you live in South Carolina, if you move to North Carolina, you're still a United States citizen, but you can change your citizenship from South Carolina to North Carolina. Basically, your state citizenship is more or less wherever you're domiciled at. And that's the only difference. <clears throat> but being or saying that you're a state citizen has absolutely no impact on whether you are a federal United States citizen or not. So I'm just gonna read this last part and nobody has any questions or wishes to say anything. I'm gonna go ahead and call it a night and hop off here. So, yes, actually talking about pleadings and common law. And this comes from Corpus Juris Secundum talking about pleadings. Yeah, exactly. It comes from the section talking about common law. Yeah. And it says, a party asserting a common law privilege has the burden of pressing it by pleading and proving the existence of its elements. A common law theory of liability may not independently sustain a cause of action that is not specifically articulated. The court must interpret pleadings broadly they must construe them responsibly to contain all that may all that they mean but not in such a way so as to strain the bounds of rational comprehension more or less it has to make sense you have to be able to explain it to anybody a common individual and this book is also written for attorneys so when they're talking about the common law and they're talking about how it's pleaded then uh it's it's more or less written to be interpreted by somebody who went to law school and somebody who 
more or less plays the legal game. This is one thing that I think is pretty funny about when people say that nobody's actually seen a common law action be moved. Everybody has actually heard of a common law action and a judgment that's come from a common law action. Uh, because, for instance, when a pharmaceutical company gets sued in a mass lawsuit like uh you know, a class action lawsuit. Most class action lawsuits are common law actions. And using the pharmaceutical company as an example, say a pharmaceutical company comes out with a product and it causes unknown side effects and the legislature didn't make a statute saying, well, if you give somebody a prescription pill that raises their estrogen levels and then men start growing boobies or you know women start acting erratic because their estrogen's way too high you know you are going to be liable no no statutes ever written that way so any situation like that is a common law action it's not an act common law action but it is a common law action because people have a right to go and get a prescription and you know, reasonably presume that whatever they're taking that prescription for, it's not going to cause worse side effects than whatever they're dealing with in the moment. In the absence, I'm getting back to corpus juris secundum again, in the absence of a statute or rule to the contrary, where a party relies on the common law of another state or declared by the adjudicated precedence of its courts, that law must be substantially pleaded and proved. The party may be required to cite specifically the judicial decisions stating the law of the foreign state. The party may also be required to state the pertinent parts of such decisions and to make a direct reference to where the court's ruling may be found. But it is not necessary that the whole opinion, including a transcript of the record, be set out. An affidavit relying on the law of another state, not directly interpreted by its high, highest court, need not submit a brief of the authorities of the foreign state. And so that's basically telling you that whenever you are using the common law, and this is the way that attorneys use the common law. If they're in another state and they wish to move under the governing factors of, let's say, Florida. If you're, if you're in New York and you wish to move under the governing factors of Florida, you would bring in the precedent and you would show how it applies to whatever action you're doing. And typically, you would do this if, say, you were a Florida citizen and you just didn't know or understand the way they proceed or move court in New York. So <clears throat> you don't have to bring in the entire case law. You can just point out, here's what the case was about, here's what the decision was made, and here's how it relates to my case. Again, I wouldn't actually go and do those things. Typically the elements of common law, of the common law are pretty plain and simple. Uh, for instance, just to give an example, 
an element of the common law for say accessory after the fact is that whoever was the accessory knew that a that someone had committed a felony after they knew that that individual committed a felony they gave them aid and assistance and you know whatever so they knew a felony had happened they knew that the person that they're giving aid and assistance to had committed that felony and then they give them aid and assistance those are the only three elements just like for instance murder one you got to have a crime you gotta have a murder a you gotta have a weapon you gotta have a body and you gotta have the accused typically you also have to have a witness those are the elements to murder and these elements to common law crimes have been set up for hundreds of years through case law precedent so you know back in the 13th century maybe they didn't have all of those elements to common law murder but i would say by the 16th century they absolutely had all of those elements you had to have a witness you had to have a body you had to have a weapon and you had to have somebody who obviously you believe committed the murder and uh, typically you're gonna require some type of motive um but you know if you have all of the other things you're going to figure out the motive. Nobody's going to prosecute something like that without a motive. Anyways, um, that's it for tonight. So if anybody wants to talk or say something, now's your time. Otherwise, I don't know if I'm going to be back next week. So I don't know if I'm going to do the show next week. And if you follow the um whatsapp or the facebook i will definitely post up there if i okay for some reason everybody got muted so if anybody wishes to say something just raise your hand is it possible to email me privately yeah if you go to uh jc and shaman at gmail.com then you can get an email to me privately and i i'll get back to you if it seems pretty interesting um you know sometimes i get a lot of emails sometimes i don't but not all the times is is do the emails strike my attention so if you go to uh j c a n d s h a m a n at gmail dot com you can send an email yes yes guess three that that is the email address so mark uh guest three put the email address up um so you can email to that address and get in touch with me
So anybody want to put their hand up? Money Mike, you want to advertise a call? Uh, you're welcome, guest three, and you're welcome, Mark. Um, hopefully, whenever I, I do a show again, y'all come back out. And I appreciate having y'all out here and everybody who showed up on the call tonight. Uh, thank you for spending your time with me and instead of doing something else or being somewhere else. So I appreciate it. Take care, Money Mike. We'll uh, see you on the next call, I'm sure. Anyways, Angela's call is tomorrow night. If anybody wishes to just hop on a call, and I will talk to y'all sometime in the future. Y'all have a nice night. Bye bye.